Welcome into the Grace Point Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremiah Johnson. We bring you daily encouragement for your daily walk with Christ on this podcast. So please like, share, subscribe. So grateful for all of you that listen each and every week to the Grace Point Daily Podcast. This episode is going to be a Real Life Stories edition, and it's a missionary with the Missionary Gang. You guys know that have been listening the past few weeks, we've been lining up missionary after missionary uh, of amazing missions stories. And because we want you to capture the heart of God for missions, that's why we're doing this stuff. And and we're all so completely messed up now because these missionary stories are inspiring. It's like, it definitely makes me want to do missions. I hope it makes you want to do missions, pray for missionaries, give to missionaries, all that good stuff. So we want to welcome on to the Grace Point Daily Podcast today, David Hunt, missionary to Latin America. Hey, David. Hey, Pastor Jeremiah. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you were on the Grace Point Daily Podcast and talk about real life stories. You know, before we hopped onto this podcast, uh, David Hunt and I are having this beautiful conversation and everything is going well. And then my SD card gets all botched up and, and then I look like a fool and I'm like, I'm running around the church like a crazy man and I can't find a micro SD card. And David Hunt is on the phone like, what is wrong with this pastor, you know? Well, that actually sounds a little bit more like <laughs> normal daily life in right. another country. And the, the best part of the story, David, is is that uh, I ran to Walmart, which is very close to the church. I get the SD cards very quickly, and I'm like, okay, cool. I think I'm tracking it. I told him 15 minutes. And as I get out to the parking lot, a huge gust of wind rips the bag out of my hand, and my SD cards now go flying. And so I go from running around as a crazy man in the church to now running around as a crazy man in the Walmart parking lot. Everyone's like, what is this guy doing? He's all over the place. And I'm just like, I got to get my SD cards and my receipt. Otherwise, the church finance lady is going to be really mad at me, too. Now I have David Hunt, the missionary who's mad at me. I got the finance lady at the church mad at me. So you got to get me back on track here today, David Hunt. <laughs> we'll help you out. Yes. Okay. So anyway, that's what we're doing. We want to talk missions and you're a missionary to Latin America. Let's give the people just a quick bio of who you are, your family and where you're ministering at right now. I guess my story starts in central Oklahoma, where my dad, at 16 years of age, gave his heart to Christ uh, after his mom had prayed for years and years and years for him to, to give his heart. So he was a first-generation missionary. He obeyed the call. Uh, he met my mom in, in Texas, and then they went to the Dominican Republic, and that's where I was born. I grew up as a, a third-culture kid. I grew up speaking Spanish as a primary language. And so even before I had any idea that God would direct me in this way, he was already putting some things there that would be needed later, like the ability to to speak a foreign language. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Dominican Republic, which is connected, same island as Haiti, correct? Yep. You got it. Yeah. I've been to Haiti a few times and I know there's probably different dynamics that occur between those two countries, but amazing. So first generation, uh, you're, well, you'd be considered second generation Christian, or I'm sorry, your dad was in a Christian family, but first generation missionary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he gave me the advice starting out. He said, son, if you can do anything else in life and be happy, don't be a missionary. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so it took me a while to process through that one. Um, but after I, I really thought about it and got up into my teen years, I realized what he was telling me is this has got to be about God's direction. This is, this has to be about, uh, the call and the Holy Spirit's direction. It can't just be about, you know, because the need as important as that is, isn't enough reason to, 
to go. God is actually directing us to do that uh, regardless of, of where those needs are. Yeah. And I, and the pastor in me kind of uh, is processing, as you say, something like that. I, I, I like and I don't like when people say that. From one standpoint, I, I wish people would take a seriousness not just to like ministry calling, but to their their everyday calling, because every, everyone has a calling and a direction by the Lord that they should take with the yep. utmost sacredness exactly and, right. and seriousness as well, you know? Yeah, the first thing that God dealt with my heart about, um, you know, I, I was growing up in a, a very different context. It was Latin America. I was surrounded by Spanish-speaking people. At, at home, we spoke English, but just a, a very different type of environment, different culture. And, and the more I prayed about it and started finding some key Bible verses, and uh, one of the first ones that jumped out at me was when Jesus called the disciples. And that call uh, was all about being with Him. So before there was any ministry, before there was any anything going outward or, or even thinking about other people, the entire purpose of, of what God was calling us to do was to focus totally on Him. And I, I love that because that is that's the part that unites all of us. It does, uh, you know, regardless of what the expression of that call is and what we're doing, um, God has called us to be focused on him. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's go to the beginning of your life and your story. I mean, I've been in Haiti and they speak Creole, which is kind of a broken French, but you grew up speaking Spanish. What, what was it like growing up in that country? What were your memories as a child? Did you love it? What, what were your feelings and memories growing up as a kid in the D- Dominican Republic? Oh, I loved it. Um, I mean, the the weather was hot all the time, um, but uh, we got to enjoy that. We got to be outdoors a lot. Um, my dad was uh, a Royal Rangers commander, first for the country, and then uh, did training camps all over Latin America. So at, starting at six years of age, he pulled me into Royal Ranger camps, and I felt so privileged to, uh, to be in you know this, this important tent, uh, this Royal Ranger tent, and uh, you know, just kind of had a sense of, of connection uh, to the people in the Dominican Republic. I grew up and all my best friends uh, starting out were Dominican. And uh, so for us, you know, even the language part was different. I would speak Spanish only at home, but really about 80 to 90% of my life was uh, speaking Spanish at school with my friends in the neighborhood and just communicating that way. Wow. Were you on, was it, were you ocean based or were you coastal based area or were you inland or what was the location that you grew up in? Uh, we were probably an hour from the coast. I mean, it, it's on an island, so any direction you drive, you yeah. eventually you eventually get there. Yep. Uh, but uh, that was really the high point uh, of those outdoor experiences for me too. And uh, you know, Dad and I talked about that. I, uh, one of the things that I'm reminded of is just the gift of a strong relationship with my dad, because that prepared me for this idea of what it meant to trust my heavenly Father. And uh, he did a really good job of. Um, of preparing and, and giving me those experiences. And even when he was incredibly busy uh, doing the missions work, he would still find ways to, to include me or take an hour aside and, and do something special with me. And I really appreciated that. Wow. That's awesome. Now, growing up, you were born in the Dominican Republic, right? That's right. Yep. Okay. And then when was your first moment or experience as a young person where you're like, whoa, I'm different because I'm assuming you were doing what a traditional Sims God missionary would do. Uh, not everyone who listens are Sims God people, but you would be there for four years and come back and itinerate. When was the first time you came back to the States and, or that first feeling of being a technically a white American and, but realizing, whoa, I've grown up different than other kids. Yeah, it's hard. And it's still to this day is a little bit hard for me to process because I'm uh, culturally, I'm not 
hundred percent American. I, I grew up in Latin America, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm also not a hundred percent Dominican. If you want to picture a really funny moment, it's when I get the chance to return to the Dominican Republic and I'm standing in this line with probably 150 very dark skinned people. And they're all looking at each other saying, should we tell him he's in the wrong line? And uh, then I get up to the customs counter because this, <laughs> this is the citizen's line. This is the the, the native yeah. line for, for Dominican Republic. And then I get up and there's even more confused looks on people's faces when they let me go through that line and welcome me into the country. Wow. Okay. Did, so did you... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm just, man, I don't know what that would be like uh, growing up in that sense. Did they accept you? Did it feel very, very natural? Did you have a sense as a kid that you were an outsider or did it feel natural growing up in that environment? Uh, yeah, and Dominicans in their culture tend to be extremely warm. Um, and, a, you know, it, as a culture, of course, I my experience was more with the Christian side of it. But the way I would describe a Dominican to you is if they're a good person, they're an extremely good person and an extremely warm person. And if they're a bad person, they're an extremely bad person. So they're, they're kind of, there's kind of no middle ground in the, the expression of the Dominican personality. They're, uh, uh, they have a lot, uh, a huge amount of the cultural heritage is from Africa. Um, and that just permeates everything. So our music is loud. Um, you know, not maybe quite as much dance, but a huge amount of rhythm okay. in the church. We just, mm-hmm. we love that. And that, that's what makes me feel at home in worship. Wow. Okay. So you're getting to know me here uh, right away. My favorite movie of all time, Christmas movie is Elf. Have you ever seen this movie, Elf? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Did you feel like that? Did you feel like Buddy the Elf, you're really a human and everyone else <laughs> around you are elves and they're like, you finally figure it out. And like, uh, hopefully he never figures out he's really not you know, an American. And then you figure it out and have a big melt. was it kind of like that or well, no? <laughs> I think where I feel more like an imposter is when I'm among Americans, because at least in the Dominican Republic, they look at me <laughs> and I stand out enough that they're willing to accept the reason there might be some differences, but it, it's actually tougher for me culturally uh, when I'm just hanging out with a group of Americans and, you know, they, they might even refer to something that's just kind of, when I first got back 18 years of age, moved back to the United States, and, uh, you know, people are talking about something as simple as a, a sitcom that they've watched, you know, mm-hmm. a year or two years ago. And I have no idea what they're talking about because I've uh, been watching, you know, Mexican comedies, Dominican comedies and, and all these other things. It just <laughs> felt like a fish out of water. Wow. Talk to me a little bit about some of your spiritual experiences growing up. It sounds like you, you know, obviously you're a missions kid. And um, but did you have a real come to Jesus moment, a moment of salvation or was it? Uh, progression of knowing him in the context of ministry as a missionary's kid. What was that like? There's uh, there's a couple that stand out um, very early. Uh, my parents were never uh, pressuring as far as a relationship with Christ, but they always uh, showed the example. So every single morning, watch my dad get up, uh, pray, read his Bible. I mean that that was just a solid rock. That's that's what he did every single morning. So when it came time that I started asking some questions as early as six years of age. I said, dad, I'm, I'm feeling all these, I guess it's what they call night terrors that kids tend to get around that age. And, uh, I was, I was having these terrifying dreams and I said, dad, I, you know, what can I do? And, and he said, well, if you pray and ask Jesus, he can take that fear out of your heart. And so I, I don't know that that was exactly a, a decision for salvation itself. Uh, but it was the first time I became aware of, of God's living presence working in my life because when i asked him he did he removed that fear and i didn't have to worry about that anymore and then um as i got a little bit older 
um, I realized that people were heading in two directions in their life and I was going to have to choose it. You know, there was the direction that was going to be, you know, placing myself, my careers, my stuff, uh, at the forefront. And then there was the other option where I would actually take my hopes and dreams and submit those to what God might want for my life. And that seemed very scary. Um, but the Lord worked gently and steadfastly on my heart. And that was the really big moment for me was when I began heading in that direction. Mm. What was Dominican culture like as far as religion was strong Christianity? 97% Catholic. Okay. So, um, yeah, there was a, a strong sense of religiousness, uh, but most of it, people's self-concept would have to do with, uh, what's a good word for it? Um, it's this idea that whatever you do has merit in and of itself. So if, if you go to church, you're earning spiritual merit by going to church. If you put money in the offering, you're you're gaining favor with God because you put some money in the offering. So it's a very contractual idea of our relationship with God, like a, mm-hmm. that God's going to owe me, um, you know, if I, if I do enough. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and as I've gotten to study about even other world religions, I realize that that's the predominant perspective that people have about God in the world and how amazing it is for us to, to experience grace, uh, like, <laughs> like the church's name. Um, yeah. but it's something that's, uh, and even, you know, people that are saved out of Catholicism will, We'll say that if, if they've never had that type of uh, surrender experience of just realizing that God's grace is what paves the way for us. And what we give back is not us earning his favor. It's us giving back of what he's already given to us. Yeah. Amen. What was your passion as a young person? I, I'm a sports guy. So I think of when I think of Dominican Republic, I think of baseball, oh, some of the great. Gonna be sorely, ba- you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> what did I you love do? So- I loved soccer, uh, but I didn't get the chance to play on the the team. So I I loved lizards and I loved bicycles. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sure there's li- a lot of li- lizards. Li- in li- there are a lot of lizards. <laughs> I was blessed. Yeah. So what did you as you're growing up? You become teenager. What were you wanting to be, or did you have any aspirations? Was it like, well, I I have to be a missionary because my dad's a missionary, or what were your goals as you're starting to head that direction in life? Uh, when I was 17, we moved back. Uh, we spent one year living in Southern Missouri when I was 17 out of all those years, uh, internationally. And, uh, a couple of friends started inviting me to the Friday night mission services at central Bible college. And so for an entire year, I was only a high school student. Um, but I got to join in and I think we heard 35 to 40 missionary speakers over that course of time. And God really began to solidify my call to missions. And I, I felt a strong burden uh, for Muslims in the world. I uh, didn't know what direction that would take. Um, and most of all, just, just a burden to, to be useful in some way. The, this idea that, you know, God, if my life can count for something, I would want it to count for something that's going to bring people to you. Yeah. Does it feel, when you kind of start to embrace that calling, did it feel just as as big of a deal to some, someone like me. Okay. I'm a white guy from Nebraska. Uh, so, you know, oh, I'm going to go to Africa. It's such a big deal. Uh, you know, I've never, yeah, obviously I've been there a bunch of times, but you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to you're a missions kid, did it still feel overwhelming and the calling to be a mission? Was it still an awestruck moment to be like, Whoa, this is going to take a lot of faith and belief. And, or was it kind of like, Oh, I've done this my whole life. This is no, no problem. No, I, I think mostly, uh, from this point in time now, 46 years old, 
I was just naive about the entire thing. <laughs> My parents had uh, had really protected us. Uh, you know, if they if or if there was a moment of serious conflict uh, in the culture or even in the missionary body, uh, they didn't share that with us as their kids. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of it was just developing in life. Uh, so I, you know, I I was focused on that relationship with God. I, I wanted to pursue that. But honestly, I had no idea uh, what I was getting into. It was going to take a while to find that out. Yeah. Wow. So I'm assuming you went to Central Bible College. Is that where you went to Bible College at? Yeah. Spent uh, four pretty awesome years there. Made some lifelong friendships with that. And uh, when I got done, um, some of you will will know this church, but uh, what's now Real Life Assembly in Monette um, used to just be called uh, Monette First Assembly of God. Uh, they had a Cuban pastor pastoring two congregations, an English congregation and a Spanish congregation. And so here I am graduating CBC, don't know where I'm headed, mm-hmm. don't feel like I'm prepared to go into missions because one of my side deals with God was, God, if you really want me to go into missions, I need to be married first. Okay. And, uh, so, <laughs> and that hadn't taken place yet. And so I'm looking for some kind of ministry opportunity that'll grow those skills and and be that and so the Cuban pastor of the two congregations of Monette invites me down for an interview, and I end up taking over the Spanish church. And so now, once again, you have this ironic scenario where somebody walks into the Monette, Monette assembly and says, where's the pastor of the English church? And they point to the Cuban guy. <laughs> but where's the pastor of the Spanish right. church? And they point to this white boy. Because how big is Monette? I mean, that's a, I don't even know. I've dri- driven through there, but would it be a thousand people or 1500 or something like that? The city about six thousand, but they they employ a lot. They 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 employ uh, probably about twenty to twenty five thousand people. They they pull a lot in from the the area. Okay, so and, and are those workers Spanish speaking people that they bring in a lot of, or was there a when, purpose when, for having a Spanish church? When I arrived there, this was nineteen ninety nine. So that we're talking a few years back. Um, at that point, the earliest person who had arrived had arrived four years earlier. And um, mostly it was a case of, uh, and I'm, I'm just speaking frankly, we're talking about reality. Uh, mostly it was undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. who were coming up uh, to fill the roles, to fill the dirtiest jobs in society, which were uh, poultry processing plants, uh, slaughtering chickens, and then turkey farms. Uh, and I, I visited all of those places during, during that part. Those are, yeah, they're they're not pleasant jobs, uh, but they're very important jobs for our society. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you were, were coming from CBC to Monette. Were you a missions major or was this like the pathway? You're like, okay, I'm, I'm a missions major and I'm going to go be a pastor for a couple of years and I'll be a missionary. What was your thought process? Definitely had an idea of that. In fact, there was one person that I asked for that advice. He was already a missionary for several years. And I said, please lay out the path for me. Okay. I said, okay, <laughs> you, you, you've got, you know, you applied for your credentials, you, you've got your license, but you don't have pastoring experience. And they're going to ask you that question there. And even when you get to another country, they're going to want to know, did you pastor in your home country? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're working with pastors in another country, uh, that that's an immediate question for them. And so that, that was the purpose of it was uh, gaining pastoral experience. Wow. How long were you in Monette and what were some of the experiences that were very mem- memorable to you and experiences you gained from that um Oh, there were some there were some highs and there were some lows. Uh, children's ministry, we had some really really cool moments with children's ministry. Um, there was one 
where I was, I was just praying. I was trying to be a little bit creative with that. And, you know, once again, this cultural thing comes in into play uh, because I spoke Spanish without an American accent, people were <laughs> extremely suspicious of me. Okay. And so they, they would immediately jump to the conclusion that I was an agent of immigration services. You got to remember <laughs> okay. that this is, this is primarily yeah. an undocumented community. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> um, so very suspicious, yeah. but one day, um, I, put three puppets in my backpack, had them poking out of the backpack behind my head. And I went to every trailer park I knew of and just knocked on doors and invited people. By that point, I had learned that prime time was about three to four in the afternoon before everybody got ready to go in for second shift, which was the the shift that most people worked on. And so that window, three to four in the afternoon, you know, knocked on those doors. And on a, a day that looked, you know, the, the day came about for that children's ministry, I invited a a group to come down from the Bible college from CBC to help us minister. And the day was horrible. It was the worst weather you could imagine. It was, it was practically freezing. It was pouring rain outside, thundering and lightning. And I think we had between 50 and 60 uh, kids that showed up with their families and they were so excited to be there. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment of ministry. Wow. Okay, cool. So when did you're there, you're ministering in Monette, and, you know, obviously you're, Speaking Spanish, there's still a lot of connections from childhood. When did the missions moment come? Was there that moment, the sky opened, Jesus popped out, you are now going to be a missionary, or when did the missions moment come? Well, the the terrifying moment uh, came a few years later. uh, I had gotten married. I moved back to Springfield. My wife and I had both ended up working uh, what I felt like were pretty high-level professional jobs. I I was working uh, as a retirement planner for a financial company. My wife was working as a seventh grade uh, school teacher in the public school system. Uh, That was Ozark, Missouri. And uh, God challenged us to surrender our paychecks and go on mission support. And you make that decision before you have one single missionary pledge to your name. Yes. And if you want, if you want to talk about terror, feeling like you're jumping off a cliff with no parachute, wow. that was, that was the moment. Um, mm-hmm. but we knew that he was in it. And, uh, when it came about as God was directing us to the country where he initially sent us, uh, I'd grown up speaking Spanish. My wife had grown up speaking French. So we, you know, we thought this was human wisdom. Of course, it's going to be either a French or a Spanish speaking country. That's logical. Mm-hmm. And then God directed us uh, through a series. Uh, it would take a long time to give you every step. Sure. Just a series of yeah. supernatural circumstances uh, culminating where I, I walked in. I was doing some uh, some additional schooling and I walked in for my last class and I asked my advisor. He was not there. Uh, next advisor, still not there. I went to the sixth person on the list and they signed off for one final class that I had to take. And as I'm getting up, walking out of his office, he says, come back, sit down. You could tell this was the Holy Spirit. Come back, sit down. Tell me a little bit more about where you're headed in ministry. I said, well, uh, God feels like he's pointing us toward this country called Suriname in South America. And when I said that, the name of the country, his jaw almost hit the table in front of him. His (laughs) his eyes got as big as saucers. And he looks at me and and says, do you realize there's a, a missionary from another church group who's been working in that country for the last 20 years, He's he hasn't been in the city for 10 years. He's here for 48 hours. Here's his number. Call him, meet with him tomorrow. Wow. And um, so my wife and I wrote down a list of questions we had. You know, how do we confirm this call? Where is God leading? And I've stuck that list of questions in my pocket. We went and met with a gentleman named Douglas Norwood, Broken Jars Ministry. And uh, he answered 
after we got done with the meeting, I realized I'd forgotten the list of questions. I never took it out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remembered it finally as we're walking away from the meeting and I pulled that list out and I realized he had answered every question on my list in the exact same order that I'd written it down. And at that point, we, we surrendered. We said, God, we don't understand your direction. This doesn't make sense to us because it feels like you're taking us from an area of strength to an area of weakness. But if this is where you want us to go, we will go to follow you. Wow. Let me backtrack a minute here. Uh, give me a little bit of information or background about your wife. Is she American? Is she Dominican? She said she spoke French. Tell me about her. She grew up on the other side of the world. Her mom and dad were missionaries as well. So she grew up in the French South Pacific. Uh, she spent quite a bit of time on the island of Vanuatu, which some of mm-hmm. the listeners will probably uh, that be was our last, because, Yeah, one of our last oh, podcasts. That's, so. that's awesome. Uh, so amazing experiences there. And then God opened an extremely narrow window of opportunity to go into New Caledonia. Um, as far as I know, no other missionary has been able to go there since then. And this was the French-speaking South Pacific. And so they were able to to go and spend some additional years there. And that, that's where she learned French. So we, we connected. We connected because... Uh, you know, she looks American, but she's a multicultural person. And that, mm-hmm. that was just a very strong bond between us. And her dad invited me over for some lunches with some amazing food. And that didn't hurt. Wow. What's your advice for people uh, as they're chasing or pursuing the call of God on their life in conjunction with finding a spouse? What do you, what's some primary points you give to people like that? Namely, my daughters who want to be missionaries that are graduating from wow. high school wow. and, you know, Preach at him for a second, if you could, and others that might be listening. <laughs> you you don't have to have a spouse to be obedient to God's call and missions. And I, you know, I think I had a little bit of an old school mentality on that. I do think you have to have team. Uh, you you have to have someone uh, to relate to that that is of your culture. So if you are going to go without a spouse, um, then you you do need to go in something that's a a team environment where you can you know, go through that cultural shocking experience together and, and experience that together and support each other. Uh, so that part's really important. And the spouse part is just something uh, to trust God with. It's a, it's a matter of prayer. Um, I began praying for my spouse even before I knew who she would be. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was something I know my parents were praying for that. <laughs> yeah. Probably, as you were mentioning, that's sometimes an even greater concern for, uh, for the mom and dad. Yeah. Wow. All right, Zoe and Gabriel. Hopefully, you heard at least that part. Okay, why? Okay, this this is driving me crazy a little bit here. You go to Bible college, you bounce over to Monette, Missouri. Unique experience there, and then you become a financial planner. Why would you do that? Why would you go from being a pastor in a church to a financial planner? I felt like I needed uh, some additional training, and one of the uh, the side benefits of that this was Assemblies of God Financial Services. And so they would offer me a 50% scholarship uh, for studies at Assemblies of God Theological Seminary and um, in exchange for, for that work that I was doing there. And while I was there, um, I was able to focus that job, even though you know, in some sense it's a, it's a financial job, I was able to work with them and take all the materials that were focused on biblical uh, perspective on finances, a lot of Larry Burkett's materials, mm-hmm. and we... Uh, we merged that over for our Spanish audience. So we took every department, uh, the church loan department, the stewardship department, which was that that part I'm talking about, biblical perspective, um, fundraising, every one of those departments, and we were able to bring that 
into the Spanish market. So I felt like I was serving the Spanish church, okay. even though it was a bit <laughs> of a one foot in both worlds. Who's better, Larry Burkett or Dave Ramsey? <laughs> let's let's stir up some controversy have, right they have now. Two, they have two <laughs> awesome perspectives, and uh, if we're if we're comparing that, um, if you just need a starting point, uh, Dave Ramsey is awesome. He tells you concretely. He connects more with people from other cultures than Larry Burkett does. Okay, <laughs> um, but Larry, Larry Burkett's strength uh, would be the uh, the level of biblical research that he's done. I mean, he, even his book every single verse in, in the Bible about finances. And you you read that and you have this perspective on life that changes the way you look at things. Yeah, that hey, this is why you listen to the Grace One Day of the podcast. It's just not just all about missionary stuff. You're getting other very helpful hints and things along the way. Great stories, you know, comedy, uh, financial advice. So praise God. Thank you for that, David. I appreciate <laughs> your, that. Your part's the comedy part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, okay, you step into that that calling where you, you really get serious about it now you're beginning to what, what was the time frame how long did that take and the process of i am now doing this uh how long did that take and in, in, in the journey of that that process you're, you're making me think pastor yes, jeremiah I am. it hurts <laughs> I, I graduated bible college in 1997 and it was 2005 so that was a an eight-year process from the point where, you know, I kind of think I'm ready to head out and, and help out and do some things into the point where I felt like God was giving me the release and opening the doors for us to go out and do that. Mm-hmm. What's it like? Uh, I think this is good. We haven't really talked about this a lot on some of the missionary podcasts we have. As you have to go around and, you know, share with churches and I'm sure acceptance, rejection, you know, talk to those that are listening about being missionary and, and the finance, the raising the funds part. Cause I think that has to be one of the very overwhelming parts of stepping into being a missionary as it flushes itself out and the sims of God and how they do that. Um, I think the biggest part I would ask for is, is encouragement. The, the itineration message I've been preaching um, over the last, uh, it's extended a little bit longer over about the last two years now is um, out of the story of, Naaman in the Old Testament and how there's three different people that God uses. One of those is that young servant girl that starts out the story of Naaman. And so the the person that God uses to launch a missions work to reach a person in another country is a person without resources, uh, without wealth, without influence. And I feel like that's the message I want to get across to the church is, you know, if you're a person who feels like you have zero dollars to give to missions, please understand that God wants you involved in this missions mm. process. This is mm-hmm. not a call for, you know, the, the 10% of the church or the 20% of the church that feels like they might have some extra money. This is a call for a hundred percent of the church, because if, if God has saved us, he has saved us for a purpose to reach our world. Yeah. Amen. What was it like? Let's dive into it. When you now get on the, the mission field, when you hop on the plane, you're getting over there for the first time, your first term, as they would say, Describe to me what that was like. Well, we had all the answers, of course. You yeah. know, we, were, we were coming in. Um, it took us a while to figure out we were, and this was different than where I'd grown up. Uh, and, you went, Re- and you went where? Yeah, tell me where you went. We, and, we went to Suriname. We went to a, a Dutch-speaking country. Hmm. So we went uh, without language school uh, because we had understood that if we went to language school in Europe, in the Netherlands, which is the home country of the language, uh, that would be a negative factor for us coming in speaking with that accent. So we just we went straight into the country and we we began learning there. And uh, 
one of the first things we were hit with was this was a very recently post-colonial culture. So they had, uh, uh, they had become independent from the Netherlands in 1975, the same year that I was born. And uh, so that's very recent history in terms of people's memories and on what they think of. If and I'm, so that level, real, real quick, as, if I'm looking yeah. at a map, where is this at? You know, describe you're, that for the people real uh-huh. quick. You're on the slope of South America. So you're headed down as you slide down South America, you start with Colombia, then Venezuela, then you have three little countries and Suriname is the middle of those three. It used to be called Dutch Guyana when it was still under uh, the rule of uh, the Netherlands or the Dutch kingdom. And now it's called Suriname. It's its own independent name. Hmm. Wow. Okay. But, th- but that, that was a, a remarkable experience uh, attempting to, to serve a church, to minister to a church uh, that still had really a, a relatively open wound in their history in terms of this oppression from, uh, from white people, from European people. And so just learning to minister in that, uh, how to help. On the one hand, we had a platform. We were invited to help with their Bible school program, uh, which was such a cool opportunity. Uh, the training that I had received helped me with that part. They, they were welcoming to that part. Um, but we just had to learn. It was, it was an, uh, a very different culture. And it didn't tend to be a, you know, there's some cultures, the Dominicans will, will explain themselves to, to you. They'll, they'll tell you what's going on. Uh, but other cultures in the world are a little bit, um, I, I almost thought of it as like an Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, where a person, you know, might not tell you up front what's actually going on. And you would actually have to go ask a, a third party or somebody else who knew about the situation to figure out what the details were, because if you ask directly, so they're uh, an indirect culture. Um, there were a lot of people who loved Jesus. Um, you know, it was a, a mix of a lot of things. And uh, before we went, um, we were thinking that God was sending us to to really evangelize in the community. Uh, they're the highest percentage of Muslims in the Western Hemisphere, hmm. and so that was that was one of those things that confirmed that initial direction. Twenty percent Muslim, wow. and uh, also a very large proportion of uh, East Indian or what they call Hindustanis, and so a lot of Hinduism, Hindu temples on uh, just about every corner of every city block, and uh, so all these uh, all these world religion influences. Um, and it was a place of a lot of prayer. If there was one thing that God turned me uh, toward in those times, it was to learn that that my ministry had to flow out of prayer. I needed to mm. pray before, I needed to pray when I met with people, and even people that I never got the chance to share with, to still be willing to intercede with uh, or for them and ask God to work in their lives. Wow. This is such a little minute thing, but is an accent really that big a deal? As you're talking about learning the language and oh, we didn't want to learn it here because the accent is, is that really that big a deal? I'm not even sure how to answer that one. I yeah. mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think, uh, Americans tend to take it as much. Uh, our ear would be tuned toward, you know, if we hear a British, a British accent, we yeah. automatically assume that that person is more educated than we are. Okay. Yeah. So there, sure. you know, there's, there's some type yeah. of that, that assumption. So yeah, there, there's some assumptions, there's some, some traps that it falls you into. Sure. And, uh, for us, it ended up just being a decision. I think if we had pushed for that, we probably could have had the chance to go to another culture, mm-hmm. but we felt like this was the place that God was calling us to. And, yeah. uh, and we found those opportunities too. Yeah. I love the thing that you bring up, uh, talking about, and, and I was hitting on this Sunday night just a little bit that, that there's really no randomness 
in your life. That is that God is ordering your steps. I would even argue, even when you're not following him, he's, he, he's ordering all and putting all these things in position uh, for hopefully the day that you step into what he has for you. And it kind of all comes back. You know, like you said, you learned this here. You learned that there were things you took from being the financial planner guy. There's things that you took from Monette. And those there's, there's things that you took from growing up in Dominican Republic. And they all shaped you to do what? To be what God wanted you to be. That's exactly right. Yeah. There was a ministry, and I'll try to close the loop a little bit. There was a, a ministry that I had been invited to be a part of when we first entered missions, and it was what my dad had been doing for the last 20 years. He spent 40 years in missions. The first 20 years, Royal Rangers, my mom and missionettes planted that all over Latin America. The last 20 years, master's level education, um, no other higher level in the Assemblies of God. And not because they're just trying to push people up to, to titles, uh, but because this was the number one request from our Latin American leaders. They look at the United States and they say, look at all your schools that you have. You know, look at uh, look at Evangel, look at Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, not to mention all the others in every corner of the United States. You have all those resources. Why don't you share that learning? Why don't you pour that into us in Latin America? And so there, there's this deep, deep desire uh, for learning, for growth and uh, I was invited to be a part of that. I did not feel like I could accept at that point. Um, God was leading us into Suriname. Uh, God was leading us in a different direction. And so I said no. And six years later, uh, we had adopted our first son in Suriname. Uh, we now have four adopted children. And the opportunity came back again. You have to find a place to base. You have to spend a couple of years living in the United States to finalize your son's adoption paperwork. You cannot go back overseas like you wish you could at this very moment. Mm -hmm. And so what are you going to do? And so at the beginning, I think I honestly felt a little bit constrained. I, I felt like maybe I was accepting second best as compared with something where I would go out and you know live in another country and base there. And what God began to do in my heart uh, was something awesome at that point. I realized that if I did my side from here from the United States, that I could multiply it. So if, if I went out, you know, this is the concrete example, I could spend one week, you know, I could teach how many people. But if in that same week I mobilize four Latin American teachers to other countries, I've even been able to help them go into countries like Venezuela, where I cannot get into because of the political situation. Mm -hmm. um, we've been able to send them to other places. And so that mobilization part, that multiplication part, because we're dealing with the greatest harvest of any area of the world. You know, some people look at Latin America, uh, 27 million believers in the Assemblies of God alone, not to mention other fellowships. And I grew up in that. That was the the revival movement, even though I wasn't aware of it as a kid. Just yeah. <laughs> you know, we were seeing just wow. you know tens and hundreds. We we grew up in a church that started in somebody's garage, and a few years later, it was a a six hundred person church, and mm. and they were having to build a third story on top of the building to hold the Sunday school classrooms. And so this explosive, and you, you, it's not just growth. That's the part we have to focus in on. This is this is revival that God's Spirit brought to Latin America. He took those people who had a knowledge mm -hmm. of God, Catholics that had an idea of who God was, they had a knowledge of some of the Bible stories, 
And then he brought into their life this fresh wind of revival, and um, and it's exploded because of that. And we want to see them mobilized to reach our entire world for Christ. Yeah, and you know, I, I be to be honest, I've been convicted in maybe the last five to ten years in terms of missions. And I want you to speak on this as we kind of wrap up the importance of training. Uh, in education, because here's the cool thing is like, if you go over to Africa, there's, you know, they're really in a lot of spaces and places in Africa, very hungry. So if I have the right amount of money, uh, I could go and get a huge crowd and it looks real good on the camera. Great photo op, great um, promo. Uh, and, and, and th- you know, hundreds of people get saved and that's all well and good. I, you know, I've been to the slums of Nairobi. I've been to the slums of uh, Port-au-Prince and uh, places like that. And I've taken the pictures with naked babies and, you know, African baby, pregnant belly because of sickness, et cetera. And sometimes we're really moved by that stuff. And, and there's importance and value to that. But I do believe that if we're going to have a strong, healthy church that changes and truly shifts the culture of these countries, then we have to have strong churches, strong pastors, strong leaders. And that comes through not just evangelism uh, and humanitarian efforts, but it comes through the training uh, and the education of God's leaders and God's people. I think God uh, at some point deals with our pride a little bit, and I feel like he's dealt with me over and over and over again, And um, because there are many other things that seem more immediate sometimes than this ministry that I'm doing, but I know that I'm pouring into 650 people. Those 650 people are pouring into 42,000 Bible school students. Those 42,000 Bible school students are going back to their home churches and they're ministering. And so I think of the story of uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and that's really my metaphor for, for the ministry that's taking place through what we're doing. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do a compassion ministry, that we shouldn't mm-hmm. do those other things, uh, but we really need to listen to the people we're ministering to and ask them what their priorities are in ministry. And they're not asking for training uh, because they want to exalt themselves over somebody else. They're asking for this very reason. They want to pour back into every single other person that they minister to yeah that so good such good stuff well missionary david hunt to latin america round of applause for you good job thanks for joining the grace point daily podcast how people that want to follow you further that have listened to this where can they catch you at social media facebook website etc a good starting point would be our our website it's real simple it's www.agmd.org forward slash you forward slash hunts Awesome. Well, it's been great stuff, great thoughts, great input. Uh, We just appreciate you so much coming on the Grace Point Daily Podcast. And for those of you that are listening, I really appreciate it each and every week as you dial in with us. Please, I'm, I'm just begging these missionary stories. Why don't you share it with someone? Send them a direct message, send the link, whatever you got to do. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Daily Podcast. We'll talk to you guys next time.